Others are coming. The library has been breached. Hey, who turned out the lights? Welcome to the Hoover Interview. I'm Michael. I'm Shelby. Colin is in the house. And I am Jace as always. And tonight we're going to dive straight into Silence in the Library. If you couldn't tell from our opening. Are you afraid of the dark? Yes. Actually, if there's one thing that I was always scared of, it would have been the dark. I mean, it's not really irrational, is it? I mean, we don't see as well in the dark. I'm sure that nocturnal animals aren't afraid of the dark. Well, I think they call it irrational because it's just because you can't see anything or that you, you well, don't yeah, know what's that, there. Yeah, so there could be so, danger there. I mean, that's like a natural instinct we have to develop as an evolving species to like, you know, there were like wolves and bears and stuff. We didn't know what was out there. Sure. If you were not near the fire, you're going to get killed. But a lot of today's life, you turn off the light in your living room, nothing has really changed in, in the grand scheme of things. Like e- even in the dark... Most people could walk through their living room and not bump into anything. Yeah, that's but, true. But a lot of that fear is there. So I think there's that kind of I feel like it also goes into, like, if you believe in ghosts or not, too, because I've had interesting experiences in the dark. Tell us more. I, Shelby! <laughs> I don't know. When you've lived in a house that someone was murdered in, the basement usually isn't the most comfortable place to be. Was someone murdered in your guys' house? Not his house, but, like, I've lived in another... It's a long story, but um, we don't need to dive into that. Do, but, you, do you know something I don't know? <laughs> I'm there more than you are. Sounds like a really good this podcast moment. What, okay, what did you do to AJ? I swear to God. This actually... Because, like, I don't want to give any spoilers, but, like, you know, later on in... Well, this is New Who. Um, you know, there is another episode in which the doctor expresses, you know, fear of the dark. And I just, I completely forgot that this episode existed when I watched that one Peter Capaldi episode because I was under the impression that it had something to do with his childhood. However, David Tennant kind of debunks that by being like, oh, everyone's afraid of the dark. And it's just like, oh, I don't know how I feel about those two things. I haven't really processed it at all, but I thought it was... I, I, I don't know. Already. I thought that the, the beauty of, of, the, of Listen, the episode that you're referencing, was... Yeah. That, that episode. Well, the beauty of that part of it was that it, it humanized the doctor in many ways because it was like, yeah, he was a kid and he was doing what kids do, you know? He was afraid of the dark like a child and yeah, he was but, hiding. And it doesn't really matter what the source of yeah, that but, fear was. The importance is, is that he was young and he was vulnerable and Clara was there to help him. But with that episode too, you know, we did open up that – there was, there could be good reason to fear still, you know, I think it was left open-ended and here it was turned right, you know, straightforwardly. There is good reason to fear the dark. Yeah. Your irrational fears have been rational all along. In every corner of the universe, there are these shadows and what is in the shadows? A swarm that eats people. 
I'm surprised that wasn't referenced at all in that episode because David Tennant was like Peter Capaldi in the past, you know? And it was the same writer, I think. If River was allowed to say more in the book, if she, you know, went back a little further, you know, she might reference it. River. Oh my gosh, first appearance of River. And she was meant to be a one-off. Which I thought was crazy. Yeah, she's definitely no one-off. Alex Kingston's performance in this, especially when she sees that the Doctor cannot recognize her, is dead on. Oh, God, it's so, it's heartbreaking. You could see yeah. the heartbreak. Like, she's like, you you don't know who I am. And it's just, it's it's weird watching Matt Smith just be, be like, that's a Sonic, or like, that book looks like my TARDIS, and why are you going through my timeline? She, I think River, uh, I think, well, I think Alex Kingston's River is definitely one of the greatest companions and i'll put her in the companion category me too she's my favorite that the doctor has has really had um she she can be controversial because a lot of the old schooler old school fans always were like well the doctor shouldn't have any romantic ties but to be fair the doctor does have a very romantic set of hearts so it's very likely that at some point he's going to find somebody that he does actually care a little more about and his romance with river is different from his romances with other companions too cuz she's different <laughs> right yeah and i think i think it's more like she's kind of more on his level cuz obviously you find out a little bit more about her later on in the series um, but, but but even here we see her interacting and you know knowing what's up and having a you know better handle on things than the doctor in many ways and Ezra and Sonic and is you know just holding her own and, and you know it's kind of a, a shocking thing to see the doctor put in his place so you know effectively. Yeah, she's like these are the rules you uh, kind of have to obey by them. I was like what, what rules? What are you talking about? It's your rules. I know more about this than you do. <laughs> and it's the first time we get to hear her say, hello, sweetie, and spoilers, which are, I think are two big catchphrases for the Classics. rest of rest of her t- tenure. In uh, and, and, and funny story, actually, it was, uh, I think, at least well into season six um, when she had an interview with Craig Ferguson and she mentioned the spoilers line and he was like, you know, that's actually a thing that people say. Like, that's not just a River Song thing. That's like a catchphrase, like on the internet and stuff. And she was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> she really thought she created that by herself. I mean, that's cute, though. I mean, she might as well have. I just think it's super weird that people are like, no, the doctor's too superior to like ever be in a relationship. Like, this is like a billion, not billion literally, but this is like a bit like 10 incarnations later can he not have like one low-key love interest that lasts like a few of his lives well yeah and i think that you know with her being more on the same level it makes sense that he has that yeah like there are the only other time lord is the master like she's probably the only other closest thing to him it makes sense for that to happen and that was yeah it's also a very tragic love story because obviously um we it, it's not like the doctor ha- the doctor's always going to be living longer than river no matter what even though and, and we don't really know enough about her within this episode yeah you can't say that with certainty at this point true but i'm just saying uh, in general if you think about it well it's kind of like you know some like 
someone whose spouse has Alzheimer's or something, you know, because she's sitting there going, you know, like, I know that it shouldn't, you know, hurt that he doesn't remember me because, you know, it's not like it's his fault or whatever, but, you know, it still does. <laughs> Definitely. I think it was quite interesting. I think David Tennant's performance was also pretty good because he's juggling trying to save the humans, trying to figure out what's going on with the Vastra Narada and River Song at the same time. And he changes his whole demeanor between all those different sections. Like he's, he's on top of things when he's telling people to run and getting people to move and, and, and doing doctor things, doing the typical doctor things. And then all of a sudden he has those moments that are, he kind of calms down, just thinks for a minute and tries to wonder who is this person? And you can see it in his face. And so the performance that he gives is almost on is definitely on equal grounds for with Alex Kingston. Has the doctor ever been put in that kind of a situation before in the past where like he's known by someone but he doesn't know from what? Um well sort of. Okay, so so there's a a book where that happens, but it's like and it's the fourth Doctor, except for, I think, the, the book was actually written after this episode aired, but it chronologically, for the Doctor's timeline, happened earlier. Mm-hmm. And the whole meeting people and then figuring out what's going on happened, like, all in one sort of lump time. It wasn't, like, scattered across the Doctor's timeline. It was like, he met people, and then he was like, oh, I've been here before, I better go back in time and then come here again. Mm. That sounds like a Tom Baker thing to do. Yeah, I, think, I mean, even still, I think I think Jason's point like really stands still and opens it up because you'd expect for a show about time travel with a lot of other time travelers in it and to a have lot a lot of these the and knows. these random occurrences to happen out of order in in relative nature to how each other have met in other you know right, but time conscious streams like always meet each other in the same order. It seems like every time the doctor interacts with them, it's like they're at the same point in the time stream as him. They remember the same things. They don't yet know the same but, things. You know, and we everything. also see time travel from other areas too that are time time lords, and it doesn't seem that's to be true. A thing that often comes up. I Although think- it is hard to tell where the Daleks are at any given time because, like, their stuff's always changing around. But like, feasibly, you know, I mean, they're pretty static. More or less, so like when you meet them, they, it actually could be like. I mean, just like give it like a, a Captain Jack or something in the equation. Yeah, I think it would be a very amazing plot point to actually have a few episodes where people that already know what has happened or what is going to happen are in are in the episode, and the Doctor has not a clue, and neither, neither does the audience, and that's and then have them kind of interwoven. Um, into this kind of like big reveal as to how it all happened to begin with. And those kinds of plots would actually be amazing. The only problem that I think is that when you stop being linear for a general audience, that general audience is going to get a little confused as to what's going on, especially if they're jumping in in the middle of whatever that series is. No, because it, as we will see here, it works fine with River. And she's jumping all over the place time-wise. The, the, the reason that Doctor Who's not confusing is because it follows the Doctor's timeline. Like, we're always following the Doctor's chronological timeline in it. And so he zips all over the place. But if you were to ever actually, you know, see 
Doctor Who from like a Earth's chronological timeline, it wouldn't make any sense, probably. You don't it's, think about that often. I kind of wish someone would kind of create that. Oh, I wrote a fan fiction on it. I'll try to remember to send you a link. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you would definitely not go in Doctor Order in that case. Because the fourth Doctor would be the very first person on the planet, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. He, he was there when... Well, actually, no. Is Doug in there first? No, actually, actually, no, the fifth Doctor was down... Was there beforehand? He How? Was, because that's when human. Well, no, I guess you're right. No, I guess that's when when life started. And you could also go with David Tennant in his first episode. With Donna went and checked out the Earth wall. It was still forming. True. Although in the uh, in the serial Edge of Destruction, the first Doctor's and his TARDIS go back to the very big, the, almost the very beginning, the Big Bang. Oh, they're, they're only seconds away. From we were talking about Earth. <laughs> True, but I'm just saying in general, if you really want to go back far. Yeah, that's fair. Far. <laughs> Donald Noble is saved. Donald Noble has left the library. Oh, those nodes were really freaky, weren't they? They were. Uh, one of them was played by Joshua Dallas, the second one. He, of course, is the Prince Charming in Once Upon a Time. But I thought that was that was really kind of freaky when, when those faces turn around and start talking to you. Honestly, more creepy than the Vashni Arata. Really? That didn't phase me at all. The whole time, like, every time I've watched this, I saw it, and I'm just like, I don't really get it, like, what's so, like, freaky about the these faces things. It's like, yeah, it's a little morbid, a little disturbing, but, like, it just, it's just a manifestation of a computer program that happens to have some organic components to yeah, it. Yeah, it just seems like a, a bit of an uncanny valley thing. Like, it's so close to being human, but you can tell that it's not, mm-hmm. so it's like it's an uncomfortable kind of vibe, you know? It's like, like clowns. Yeah, it's like clowns or like when you see some animation that almost looks perfect, exactly human, but the you Polar know it's Express. you know it's not. You know, sure, the Polar Express. I think it's just one of those kind of scenarios. Well, I guess it's because they described it as it's the actual flesh of the of that human's face that's kind of plastered up on there. I I guess that's where it gets a little freaky. But then again, I don't know if that's accurate. But it can't be because it chooses the face that the person looking at it most wants. So it has to be that it's got some sort of organic material that it's able to transform into the face of each of these people. That makes more sense. Because uh, there was no, you know, area for it to swap out a face or anything. I mean, it was very clearly, like, solidly there, so... I never really understood what those node things were, so when I saw Donna in that, I was they just like, They were human oh. interface devices. Like, it's just how you interface with the computer. It's creepy. The I mean, it makes sense. It is what happens when you are saved and you leave the library. Let's talk Come about on. Miss Evangelista. Oh my god, what a tragic end. Um, Probably one of the longest, most tragic deaths, I think, in all of Doctor Who. Oh my gosh, out of all the deaths that I've seen in Doctor Who, this is by far and easily the most disturbing. Because it's not often that you see someone being like, it's dark, I'm scared. Well, she didn't say I was scared, but... But it was clear. You watch someone die, and you couldn't tell them that they were dying. Like, it was the most slow, drawn-out, super dramatic, and tragic And then when she was just like, don't tell the others, they'll only laugh. Oh my god. They probably felt awful for it. Oh, and those actors did a great job like on that reaction. It was just like, oh my god. Mm -hmm. I feel so bad for her. I feel like they gave us just enough of her to where we could really feel for this death. I know, and it was 
it worked. It worked. It like well, shook me to the core. And nobody ever listened to her, but she was the one that actually discovered the secret room that was that had just opened up. So it was kind of like, uh, "Hello, guys, come on!" It, it, I think Scooby Doo does that all the time, where yeah. someone's trying to say, yeah. hey, "Wait a minute!" That's like the main <laughs> Scooby Doo thing. It's always Shaggy and Scooby. Oh, it's that and the like switching rooms running across the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little Scooby Doo knob. Super Nod. tragic. Super tragic. And when the doctor threw that like chicken thing into the shadow, and it just ate it straight off the bone super quick. Well, that's getting into the Vashti Narada themselves. Yes. This is a this is a a group of creatures that tear you to pieces within seconds. So you don't really have much of a chance if you're in the shadows. Shadow piranhas. Yeah, but what's kind of terrifying is that they don't necessarily... Sometimes they'll, like, wait, and you'll know that they're coming, and you'll have to sit there with that knowledge, knowing that if you, you know, make any big movements, you could put everyone else in danger, and you're just about to die, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, the implications are, you know, especially the doctors are like, oh, yeah, they're on Earth. Of course they are. They're everywhere. The implications are, you know, they're gnawing at you when you're asleep. They see you when they, you're sleeping. They know when you're awake. <laughs> it is a terrifying, you know, creature. And, and you know, th- there might not be a lot of them all the time, but they could be in swarms and you would never know. Shadows look like shadows. All I know is I'm not walking into that room anytime soon. Yeah. But aren't you going to be walking out of this house into the night? Shelby! <laughs> Are you trying to tell us that we should be looking out for Vashti Narada? We'll give you some flashlights on the way. They said it was okay. on Earth, too. This is true. They did say they were all over Earth, and you never knew what happened to those poor people that go off into the darkness and never never, never seen again. Yeah. Ugh. Okay, so another th- aspect of this is that we've got a whole parallel story with this little girl and Dr. Moon and her father and this alternative mm-hmm. reality kind of thing that at least on first viewing, this is kind of like, okay, what's really going on? Now, well, according to a therapist, it's not really going on, Exactly, is it? exactly. So it's kind of... It, well, it, she clearly has some kind of control over the library. Some connections to or it, con- Well, maybe she's like, yeah, she like made the books fly off. She controlled the security camera. Yeah, all because it looks like she's actually watching television. Yeah, and... She's got the remote. That was a cool scene with uh, when the doctor showed up and was just like, um... Hi, little girl. <laughs> yeah. Never underestimate a little girl. Well, and he actually obviously saw her through his computer screen. So that was yeah. that was kind of where it's kind of... I think that's where the... When, on first viewing, this is kind of like, oh, okay, now what? How do I interpret this? Yeah. Um, and it sets... I, I really like how this episode sets everything up because it kind of doesn't explain... It almost explains nothing. It kind of mm-hmm. just gives you all these mysteries that need to be solved, such as how are they going to... Well, the big one is how are they going to get out of this situation? I know. They literally... It's literally entirely mysteries. It's like, who is River Song? Well, that's the doctor's mystery. And then it's like, who is this girl? What is this library? What is this creature? Why is Donna, like, basically in this thing? Yeah, what happened to Donna? That's supposed to be for dead people. And she was in the TARDIS, almost. Yeah, she started Drew. screaming in the TARDIS. Yeah, that it looks like she got, creepy. like, intercepted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talking about Donna, this is another character that, that has a lot to do and a lot to say. And uh, Matter of fact, I want, I'd like to point something out here is that every single character in this particular piece seems to have a very obvious function. They got through it pretty quickly. And you start feeling 
very much for almost all of them. I mean, even uh, even Anita has some of her backstory talking about her grandfather and him dying and whatnot. Yeah, you really get a lot of their personalities out in like you know very efficient dialogue. A lot of depth. I mean, I really I really like other Dave. Because he even says, I'm, he, I'm not even the proper Dave. But he, he's humble, but he's like... Well, but and, cool and that's such like a normal thing, too. Like that, you might happen. It's like, oh, yeah, there's there's two Daves here. Yeah, he was the first one. You know? <laughs> like, like that... that, that that was just, like, that. stupidly unnecessary, but like also awesome. It said so much about the characters with that, like... <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very, very masterfully written. I would I would say yes. Stephen Moffat, please come join our podcast. So you would say so. <laughs> well, how would you rate this then? I was about to get to that. Yeah. How would I rate this? Mm-hmm. Oh man, this is one of my absolute favorite episodes of all time, and I will rate this a ten. I thought it was phenomenal. I thought the monsters were terrifying. I thought that the emotional stakes were extremely high, and they delivered on those stakes, even though there's a whole lot more to come, clearly. And um, River was fantastic. The acting was great. The writing was, you know, superb. And, uh, and oh, yeah, shout out to the lighting. Well done, people. Like, you know, I mean, I get it. A lot of the people were standing still when they were making the two shadows, but some of them were moving, and that had to have been difficult. <laughs> so anyways, though, Awesome story. Loved it. Captivated the whole time. 10 out of 10. I don't typically give things a 10 out of 10, but I abs- I don't think that this episode disappointed me really in any way, shape, or form. It was super, super morbid. More morbid than a lot of the Doctor Who episodes I watched, probably because of that very slow death scene. I love that this is how we got introduced to River and like how you know jarring it was for the Doctor to be like, who on earth is this? female i don't know it was just there's a lot of mysteries it set the stage perfectly i really don't really have many complaints i i just saw really love this episode especially upon second viewing so yeah 10 wow two 10 out of 10s colin what do you wow think? wow that's a, that's a lot and he gives it's it hard more. to follow <laughs> it is it certainly is but this is this is a good episode i mean you you can't Not deny great. it um well I, I will even go as far as to say this is a great episode, Chase. Oh, yeah. I do agree. This is a great episode. And it's hard to be a great episode when you're a setup episode, as this one is. But it follows through. And it brings on a great concept. We have a good uh, story arc. The pacing is phenomenal. It's, it's very well written. But I think even more than it's well written, it is paired with the right acting. And we really see the David Tennant, Alex Kingston connection and just between them, how they're acting, and uh, I think it's really Al- Alex stealing the show here. Um, but just context is fantastic. It's it's hard to see this in, in, in an honest way with fresh new eyes because I'm bringing so much to the table that I already know after uh, being a Doctor Who fan for a long time. This is a great episode. Um, but honestly, um, revisiting that, it now, I love the Monster of the Week. This is fantastic, but there's a lot of other things that, for whatever reason, I romp and enjoy a little bit more. I'm going to go out of left field here. This is only going to get a 9 out of 10 for me. Why? Say something bad about it. <laughs> it didn't grasp me as as many of others. You know, I, I found myself looking at my cell phone at a time or two. Maybe that's where my headspace was tonight. Maybe that's that's a bias of you know me and my day, who knows? But um, 
Okay, fair I enough. don't know. I, I just didn't feel like I was blown away with a 10. I didn't feel like it left me intellectually stimulated as some of my very favorite Doctor Who episodes. And I know that's not all of what Doctor Who is about, but at my peak and my pinnacle, Doctor Who leaves me thinking after an episode. And this one gives me excitement for the next episode, but it doesn't leave me intellectually stimulated around a concept or an idea quite as much. But that's very interesting because, in my opinion, this set things up so well that... It does make you think, what is going to, how, what, when, how, where, why? All the questions, all the W questions that you could have are going to be in your mind not knowing what to do with it. So, and the possibilities are endless as to what's going on here. But I just, I love, I love revisiting it. Although it would have been more fun, I think, if I had watched this for the first time and then rated it. Um, but I think my rating would probably be very similar to wh- whether it was first viewing or second viewing. Um, it, this is one of the most gripping episodes that I remember watching. And I've watched a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I would have to say that when I first saw this, I was glued to the screen. And as soon as that cliffhanger came up, oh my gosh, this is like one of the... Classic Doctor Who cliffhangers are blown away with this cliffhanger just because of what happened. You're like, oh, my God, Donna, (laughs) how, what? Uh, I would have to rate this. I would – I hate giving tens as well because – I mean, it's it it should be a rare event. But but, however, <laughs> but however um, on reflection on on reflection and and realizing that this still holds up on my fourth or fifth viewing, and I'm and it was still just as intense as it was the first viewing. I'm gonna give this a ten. Can I say something? I'm mm-hmm. gonna say something. I was in the bathroom while Colin was speaking, but I came back to hear like the very end of what you're saying. And yeah, my favorite episodes of Doctor Who are those that are really intellectually stimulating. However, you know, if I were to like really think about it, this episode, the main villain was shadows, like a light or lack of at least. But then when they went into that helmet, it's like, okay, now it's a living, well, not living and breathing. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's a thing. It's a monster. It's a creature of a sort. However... I think that the reason I love this episode, despite it lacking what my favorite Doctor Who episodes have, is because it was just, they're just, it just, there was no escape. It was so eerie. It's not often that you get to watch people die for that long. It's not often that you get to see and listen to the ghost of someone It's not often you get to watch people react to someone that you know is dead and you're trying to comfort them. That in itself is Mm -hmm. super messed up to me. And that that really got me in a way that a lot of Doctor Who episodes typically don't. I think this is one of the... I think to sum it up really quickly, though, is that this episode just has a lot of heart. It plays on your heartstrings. It makes it so that you really do feel for the people that are there in their situations. Yeah, this one has a special place in my heart. It's it's one of the uh, sort of three stories that fall into this. So the first ep- episode of Doctor Who I ever saw was A Good Man Goes to War. It's when we figure out, we find out who River is. 
And then... What a horrible beginning. Yeah. It was. A lot went down there, and it was just like... I was like, but I still don't get it. Who is she? <laughs> and then we, and then I watched the next episode, uh, Let's Kill Hitler. Where Spoilers. We, we get more of uh, River's backstory. And then... Uh, and then I was like, okay, I really need to figure out who this person is because I still don't get it because this was all just context. And um, then my brother JD was told me to go back and watch Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead, this two-parter where she first appears. And by the end of this, I was 100% hooked, total fanatic, completely sold on Doctor Who. <laughs> so no coming funny. back. In a sense, this was your... Once you go who, you always stay blue. <laughs> nice. This is this was your hook, like, line and sinker. Yep, this was, was the David sinker. Tennant. Um, yeah, so it was my first David Tennant uh, episode. But it was really, the good man's goes to war, the, the Colonel Runaway speech hooked me. And okay. then uh, Les Killed Hitler gave me the line, beeline straight to this two-parter, which sunk it. This doesn't matter for this podcast, but, like, I had a friend in high school who was really into Doctor Who, and she, like, was like, listen, you need to watch this show. Only smart people watch it. So I was like, okay, that sounds stupid as hell, but, like, all right. So I started out with Eccleston, and I was always watching the show, like, during the day, like, you know, trying to relate to my best friend. And the one time I decided to watch Doctor Who at night was the episode that I actually watched The Empty Child, not knowing that it would be as terrifying to me as, like... Another Stephen Moffat one. What? Surprising. Not surprising. I was being sarcastic. You can't read that through the computer, but that was sarcasm. <laughs> but yeah, that's a fun first for me, just going to sleep to the empty child. I was like, why? I told my best friend and she was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then to see David Tennant recently be like, are you my mommy? And I was like, oh. I think I think a lot of Doctor Who fans are, are missing Stephen Moffat to some degree. Well, yeah. Uh, for sure, especially these days. <laughs> Not everybody, not everybody agreed with him or liked his style of writing a hundred percent. I did, but <laughs> I would hurt. say, as far as showrunners go, he's definitely he took on a lot of the most popular Doctor Who stories and eras because um, he did write quite a few for David Tennant. He wrote one for Christopher Eccleston. And he wrote all of Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, pretty much with a little help. But yeah, wow. At any rate, that ends tonight's podcast. Check us out next week when we go ahead and do The Force of the Dead, which will be part two. Bye. Catch y'all later. Bye. Bye. Good night. Bye. <laughs>